session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my uh, SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Before I begin, uh, I wanted to thank everyone who came out yesterday to the Olympic Collection. I had uh, my seminar, Living a Life with Meaning and Purpose, and uh, really enjoyed seminar and to be with everyone who was there and I'll be having another one next month. Um, it'll be on a topic related to emotional intelligence but I'm going to name it something slightly different and I'll come up with a date in hopefully the next week or so and announce that on the air but thank you for everyone who made it out yesterday to the Olympic collection and look forward to seeing you next month. Um, okay before I begin the book summary or book discussion for this past week. For next week, the book is going to be Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Carol S. Dweck. That's Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. And uh, I have not actually read this book myself. I've read a lot about the idea that uh, I think was introduced in this book about having a fixed mindset and how that's not as helpful as having what they call a growth mindset but I'll get into that more when we discuss the book next week. So again, it's Mindset by Carol Dweck, and I'll post a picture of that book um, by tomorrow on my Facebook page. You want to make sure you got the right book. But let's talk about the book for this week or for tonight, and that is The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. This is a classic in uh, psychology self-help literature, um, last time I checked, it was around 7 million copies had been sold. So it's a very popular book. I think it was on the bestseller list for maybe 10 years in a row. It continued to be on the bestseller list. So it's a classic, and uh, I thought it'd be good to have it be a book of the week for us here on the show and got to read it again this week. So let's look at this book, The Road Less Traveled. And as the subtext of the title is, The New Psychology of love, traditional values, and spiritual growth. Now, the book begins with a wonderful sentence, which I actually really like, and that is, life is difficult. And the reason why I like this in a self-help book is that unlike other self-help books that are sometimes very appealing and become very popular, where the notion is, life is easy, or once you figure out this secret or this trick, everything else is going to be easy in your life. This book is realistic and is saying, no, life is difficult. It's not going to be simple. There are no shortcuts or easy solutions or something that's going to make all your problems go away. Life is difficult, and it's going to be difficult, and we have to accept that. So I think that's a great place to start, and I think um, 
a wonderful opening sentence. And the book starts off, Life is Difficult, because the first section is actually about discipline and something that the author, uh, Scott Peckett, into a lot of detail about, about how important he thinks discipline is in order for us to grow mentally and physically and spiritually, as he would put it, that we have to have discipline and how most people or many people are lacking that and that leads to a lot of mental problems. Now he outlines different aspects of discipline, what that means. And one of the first ones he talks about is delaying gratification, something that we've all heard about, much easier said than done. But he describes this um, and explains how it's important to get the pain out of the way when you have to do something and then experience the pleasure and recognize that the pain in this moment is the same as the pain if I have to do it tomorrow or later on tonight. And not only that, if I take care of what I have to take care of, get that pain out of the way, well, then I get to enjoy the pleasure even more freely than I would if I know I still have to take care of something, get something done. I think anyone, and especially any college student, can relate to that when they're procrastinating. So we have to be able to delay the gratification. And part of that also is accepting that the pain is part of life, that there are things we have to do that we not we won't necessarily enjoy, and we have to take that seriously. And we have to take one of the other things he talks about in discipline, responsibility for our problems. We must accept responsibility for a problem before we can solve it. There's no way around that. Or he actually starts the responsibility section saying, we cannot solve life prob we cannot solve life's problems except by solving them. Which sounds funny, but it's very true that if we don't actually accept that we have a problem and accept that we have to take the responsibility that I alone have to solve it, we will never solve those problems. So we have to take that time and then take that responsibility that is up to me to take care of this. And as he explains, and he uses the title of a book by Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom, very often people try to escape their responsibility. And because of that, we'd rather uh, give that responsibility to someone else. So say that, oh, it's fate or society or government or my boss or some other reason that makes me have this problem. I'm not responsible to solve it. I can't do anything about it. And so although freedom is something we think we would want, with freedom comes responsibility. And because of that, we'd rather choose to say it's up to someone else or someone else has the power over our life and take that responsibility away from ourselves rather than accepting the responsibility with it comes some pain and the idea that we have to actually do things ourselves. He also explains how um, we can differentiate psychological disorders between neurotic disorders and character disorders. And when it comes to responsibility, the neurotics assume too much responsibility. Everything is about me. I did, oh, I can't believe I did this. I was wrong here. I did this wrong. Nobody likes me. Um, I shouldn't have done this. I ought to do this. I should do that. Whereas people, people with character disorders tend to think other people are the problems. They actually don't take enough responsibility. So the personality disorders would fall into their, this category. And that's why people with some of the personality disorders tend to think, well, it's other people's fault. Well, if everyone else did it right, we wouldn't have a problem. Or if my husband or if my wife would make mistakes, we'd have a good marriage. Everything would be okay. So in both cases, some people take on too little responsibility and some people take on too much responsibility, not realizing 
of course, that they are doing so, but both of which are very, very uh, unhealthy. And he goes on to describe that to be disciplined takes work, of course, and it is such an important thing. And then when he gets into the next topic, which is love, that's the next big section, he actually talks about how love requires discipline as well, that we must be disciplined even in our love. Now, he describes love or he defines love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another spiritual growth. So it involves um, extending ourselves. So we do have to put some uh, sacrifice or put some effort into it. There is that will to extend. And it also involves nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And that's an important part where it talks about spiritual growth, although this word spiritual is one that's hard to define, and I'll get to it in the last section as well. But in, we can just say someone's growth. And the important part about that is that many times people do things that they think is loving for someone else or even for themselves. But as he's putting it, I think that is important to keep in mind. If it's not contributing to their development towards their growth, it is not actually loving. And he talks about some things first and foremost that are not love as the way he's talking about it. So he says falling in love is a misconception that we think of it as love. He says, as he describes it as sex linked and temporary and a relief from loneliness that involves a sudden collapse of our ego boundaries. So we just fall in love. And as he talks about it, it's out of our control. Whereas love is discipline that actually involves us having control over it. He also talks about how dependency is not love. And that's important for many families also to keep in mind. That being dependent on one another, whether it's a romantic partner or mother, father, or your children, that is not love. And this is actually a big way that people think they're doing something loving, for example, for their kids when they do something that is the child's responsibility out of love. But using his definition, we have to ask ourselves, is that actually contributing to my child's growth? Is that helping them develop and become who they can or who they want to be? And if not, which is often the case in families that have dependency, we have to recognize that it's not loving for us to do those things for them. We are not actually loving them by taking care of things that are their responsibility. We want to help them grow. And he also talks about self-sacrifice. I was just talking about dependency being common in families, especially in Iranian families. We have a lot of self-sacrifice, and we think that by hurting ourselves, somehow this is love that we are um, giving love to someone if we are hurting in that process. But that's not love because we have to take care of ourselves as well. Another concept I like that he talks about in re relation to love is that love involves work in a sense, or that love also involves giving time and attention to the person that you love. If you really love someone, you give them time and attention. If you are not giving them time and attention, you can't truly say that you love them. Um, this is true of our partners, but also when it comes uh, as parents, when we talk about loving our children, if you love your children or you say you love your children, but you don't act on that and you don't give them that time and attention, then really how can you say you love them? Love involves that time and attention. To say I work all day for them, but I never see them, your child is not going to feel loved by you. And you are not what you say you do, you are what you actually do, the actions that you take. So if you say you love someone, you have to show it to them through your actions. 
He also describes the risk involved in true love, including things like the risk of loss, um, the risk of commitment, the risk of confrontation, that we must um, be willing to confront one another in love as far as being open with each other. Um, and then he talks about how we also have to be disciplined in our love. It's not just something that happens or just a feeling, something you feel sometimes. You have to work towards your love. It is something that is an activity, an action, not just a feeling. So love isn't an action, or sorry, love is not just a feeling, it is an action. But very often people think of it as, do I feel in love with someone? And that's all we stop at, that feeling, not recognizing it involves an action. He also discusses how love involves separateness. So again, love is not dependency, and within love there needs to be space. If we don't have space between the partners, there isn't uh, true love. And he actually quotes from Khalil Gibran from the Prophet, and I think one of the most beautiful things written about love, and especially in this idea of separateness. And let me read the quote that he includes in his book. But let there be spaces in your togetherness, and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your soul. Fill each other's cups, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. Sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone. Even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together. For the pillars of the temple stand apart. And the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. So I think that's a wonderful um, and poetic description of how we need to have space between ourselves and our partner. And all of the things we hear in love songs and poems that we need to be um, so enmeshed and fully in love. And I can't live without you. And we spend every moment together is not true and not healthy, that there has to be space. Love is like a flame, and to keep a flame alive, there has to be that uh, connection or there has to be the friction that creates the heat, but also there has to be space so that the fire can breathe and get the oxygen to stay burning bright and burning hot. So we have to have that space. Now, another thing I really like about this book is that he talks a lot about his clients. He shares a lot of cases of course, I'm sure disguising their identity, but he talks about a lot of cases to describe the points that he's doing or to illustrate the points that he's talking about. And he even talks about how there should be love in psychotherapy or that actually what cures in psychotherapy is love. Now, this is something that's a little bit um, controversial to talk about and many people in the field might not like talking about love because we associate certain things with love. Um, especially we might think of romantic love or a sexual relationship. But really, there is truth to that in my eyes, that what you're doing to for the client, and as he describes it, is that most people are missing some love from their parents. And of course, although you can't recreate that situation, in some ways what you are doing is you are giving them some of that love that they missed. We're in some ways afraid to use that word love because we have certain associations or to think, well, in a, it's not professional to have love. Uh, we shouldn't be using that word. We sometimes use other terms for it, unconditional positive regard 
or whatever else you might want to call as a um, more technical term. But I think it makes a lot of sense to consider that there is love in that relationship that is formed between the client and the therapist. And that we know that it's the relationship is the most curative part of therapy. And so it makes sense that it is a loving relationship. Um, as often is the case when I try to make these summaries, there's not a lot of time to get into too much detail. And I say it hoping that people have read the book already and can join in the discussion or something that might spark their interest to then read the book themselves. Now, later in the book, the third and the fourth sections, he gets more into um, religion and then also into this concept of grace, which I won't get into great detail. But some of it I felt was a little convoluted and um, I think hard to follow. And it shows some of his biases and his own beliefs, which he's, of course, entitled to have about religion. But in some ways he says, he, you know, there is this curious thing that we might see people who have been through so much so much pain, abuse um, in their childhood, and yet end up okay. And it's hard for us to understand how they can end up so fine and okay after everything that they've been through. And it's hard to understand that. And he talks about this concept of grace, which in some ways is almost like the love of God or love from God. Um, And he thinks that that's what's touched a lot of these individuals. Now, I think sometimes it's hard for us to really understand what makes one person so resilient and able to respond to so much trauma and abuse and someone else not. But I think that if we just say it's something supernatural, um, we might be selling ourselves short and really trying to understand what's there. And I know there's a lot of people that do research on um, resilience because we do see this people, children who've been victims of abuse and trauma who turn out somehow much healthier than we would predict based on what they've been through. I think it's important for us to look at that and not just assume it is something supernatural or something that we can't see. While at the same time, I do agree with him, as he talks about in the section, there might be things that with through science we might not be able to fully understand either. We should always strive to understand them the best that we can, but we can't just assume that everything will be measurable the way that we want to measure them using science. So, uh, the, in the last section, like I said, I, I didn't feel like I was getting as much out of it. Um, but overall from the book, I think there's a lot to gain and I would recommend it uh, for anyone listening if you haven't read it or to read it again. Uh, and he does make a great case for people to enter psychotherapy, which I'm always a big fan of because I think people always need some more convincing because it does take courage, as he himself acknowledges, to enter therapy. So I think it's great to read this book, to hear about different cases, see how It is a difficult process, but it can be very worth it in helping you develop into who you would like to become and to heal a lot of those old wounds. So I hope you'll check this book out if you haven't already read it, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And the book for next week is Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. I didn't plan to make the author's names rhyme, but they did. Anyway, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air? Yes, hello, Dr. Fadi. Yes, hi. 
Good evening, Gav. I have a different question uh, about space or keeping the space in law or, or relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping space in a relationship? Yes. Yes, can you okay. Explain a little bit more what's the limit and what's, oh, what, what the, how we can set those limits. I mean, mm-hmm. how far is too far, how close is too close? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, there's it's not likely going to be. Uh, I can't. I'm not going to give a blanket statement of this is the number of hours. But um, what's important is for both members of the partnership to feel connected to one another, but to still have a feeling that they have their own life, to have their own space, that they're not too too much into each other's life. Now, um, the reason why I think that the, the poem or the part of the, what I read from Khalil Gibran is very good is it illustrates that that even when you're you're dancing together or you're uh, eating from not the same loaf, it shows that there is that I'm still me and you are still you. But of course, at the same time, although some relationships might have too much closeness, some might lack any closeness or might lack the closeness that is necessary. So there has to still be a strong connection and there still needs to be um, this uh, spending time together, spending quality time together. So, you know, although there I was talking about how there has to be separateness in space, but of course it can't just be space. That something has to be there to keep the flame alive as well. Okay. So as far as husband and wife, uh, like after, after like many years of marriage, so what is, um, I mean, if, if, if one of them spend a night with their friends a week, one night a week, I mean like evening, not then, all night, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, is that something acceptable? or? I think absolutely can be. Uh, and especially, again, it's important for the the partners to talk to one another. Now, are you thinking of, is this related to your personal life? Yeah, but I mean, I, I feel that, that I don't have that space, or we don't have that, that space between us. And it, it's sort of bothering me, or bothering me always. But now I was surprised when I heard, when you were reading about mm-hmm. it in the book, um, probably that's what was missing in, in our life, you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. I just am really, really curious about Yeah. How long have you... more about it. Sure. How long have you been married? 24. 24 yeah. years? Okay. And so you're saying in your marriage you felt like you th- there wasn't that space? Yeah. I mean, it's just maybe just my feeling, but, but it was kind of new to me when, when you read that book. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't have any same word, but don't. You know, <laughs> it was just really, really... Sure. Uh, well, have you talked to your wife about this issue? Not yet. It, it's very new to me. Well, it but seems uh, like the feeling was is not new to you, but maybe the justification or understanding that maybe it's okay for you to have that feeling might be new. Right. So, right? so it seems like you've been feeling that you haven't had space for quite some time, but maybe either you felt guilt or you felt that something was wrong with you or something like that so you thought you shouldn't bring it up and now when you're hearing that okay psychologists have talked about this maybe it gives you the right to talk about it well like i, I can i can read a quote from dr Farangola, mm-hmm. it just you just turn a light for me you know it just uh-huh. it just one light turn on for me so I'm, I'm gonna follow i'm gonna think about it maybe talk to her or, or even someone else but really appreciate that well that. good so, sure and i wanted you know what i want to say is you know um, I'm, I'm glad. Hopefully that did turn on the light and maybe you can even read 
his book, this book that I talked about, The Road Less Traveled, doesn't just focus on that. There's one section on that. There's other books that talk about relationships and intimacy that we'll get into more detail. One of them is called um, Mating in Captivity um, by Esther oh, Perro. Mating, like M-A-T-I-N-G. Mating in Captivity um, by Esther Perel. Perel, it's P-E-R-E-L is the last name. Okay, okay, I got yeah. it. And she talks about that issue, too, in her book. Again, a lot of authors will talk about it in relationships. Um, but what I also want to mention is, I'm glad that like I said it, turn on that light for you. But to recognize that if you feel something, even if no psychologist has talked about it or no one has mentioned it, I would always want you to listen to that. It doesn't necessarily mean you should feel that way or... Um, you do, you know, your partner has to change something because you feel that way, but we always want to listen to our emotions and we want to, um, hear ourselves to hear what we want to, you know, what's going on. So for 24 years, if you've been feeling something, but it seems like you didn't feel like you had the right to say it because maybe you were the one that was wrong. That's something I would want you to think about too. Yeah, but, uh, it's just the beginning. I mean, I'm, it's so new to me. I, I, I don't have. I don't want to say anything until yeah. I think about it. And I think that's uh, good. Myself, it's, so. Yeah, I think I was actually going to say before you talk to your wife, it would be good for you to reflect on this and to think about what you really feel um, about that. When you think about bringing it up to your wife, what? How do you imagine she's going to respond? Well, I don't think she. She's gonna accept it really easy. I, okay. have to, I have to be prepared when I talk to her. Yeah. It just, uh, I don't know. I can, I can call lack of intimacy maybe, but uh, I, I don't want to talk more about my my. Okay. If you don't want to, you don't have to. That's okay. That's up to you. But you know, you met, it's interesting because something you just said, I think, is um, something that many people experience. You said lack of intimacy, um, but on the flip side, you're saying maybe you guys don't have space. So although Sometimes when we think of intimacy, we think of closeness, meaning that we should be close to each other. Sometimes when we're so close, we actually lose that intimacy. Or put it another way, we might spend a lot of time around someone, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're emotionally intimate with them, that we're actually close. And sometimes people confuse this issue of intimacy is just about the amount of time, when really it's more about the quality of the time and what you're doing with your time together. So it seems like in your relationship, you feel like there isn't the intimacy you need, um, but there is a lot of time spent together and there isn't that space. And again, using the analogy of the flame, if you have a fire and you put your hands on it or you put something on it and completely smother it, the fire goes out. And intimacy is that same thing. You need some of that space to allow for the fire to stay strong. So I think it's good that you're, you're, you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to reflect on this issue since maybe it's a new idea or new concept. And then when you talk to your wife, I think it's good to make sure you think about how she's going to hear it. Because if you basically just start with, I want more space from you, she's going to more than likely take that negatively. But I would first right. emphasize more what you appreciate about her and the relationship and that even what you're saying is not about, first of all, even, you know, she might even hear that you want to get divorced when you say you want space. So you want to be very aware of how you bring up 
and open this topic because more than likely you're right. She's not going to be very open to it or she might even get defensive or hear you saying something that you don't mean. So I'd really take time uh, to reflect on that and be ready to bring it up and know that it might not be just one conversation that's going to solve this issue or get to a resolution. It might be several conversations, but I would first emphasize what you enjoy about her and enjoy about your time with her, but that you recognize that there could be some wisdom or something here that it could be good for you guys to have that space in your relationship as well. Okay. Well, actually, the, the lack of intimacy, even that is new to me. It's about maybe six or seven months. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe six months ago, I, I that just that was a light. And I'm by, by your father in one of the the, the other callers to to his one of his decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when he mentioned that, I got a lot of resistance. When when he mentioned that to. To her. Now, so, when you when you're talking about intimacy, do you mean like as far as sexual intimacy? No, just in conversation. In general, okay. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I can, I, you know, what what uh, what intimacy is when, when when you 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 say something and then think about it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, intimacy, you know, the reason why I'm glad you're saying that because lots of times people think of intimacy just as sex and we're not talking about that. That's one type, but we're talking more about the emotional intimacy and closeness. And the thing for you also to know is that by having these types of conversations about the relationship, when we have them in a good way and when we do them with love, it actually creates more intimacy. Although we might be afraid to have them, what actually happens is couples get closer when they have these talks about how they feel about the relationship, how they feel about their partner. Uh, it actually leads to more intimacy. So I hope you know you can have this conversation being ready for how she might respond, that she might not like the conversation initially, making sure you emphasize how much you care about her and appreciate your time with her, but that you think that things can be even better for your relationship. You want to make them even stronger rather than to take something away. Thanks a lot. Of you, course. You, you answered more than, my, more than my question and really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you calling. And you know, if you do have that conversation, whenever it is, and you want to call back and talk about how it went, I would love to hear about that. I think the listeners might be curious too. But best of luck to you. Thanks for your call. Well, even better if I can convince her to, to, to both of us call you. So oh, I w- <laughs> that would be great. I would really enjoy that. I think also you're thinking if she doesn't like the conversation, you might want to call to kind of smooth things over. But I'll be here. You guys give me a call. I'd love to well, hear how I, it goes. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this really a show. I may need your help when we talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be our little secret, but I could understand. And I have the faith, though, although, I mean, if I if you want to call in, you can do that. But I would have the faith that you guys can do it on your own because eventually, even if you call me and we do it that one time, you guys will have to have hundreds and maybe even thousands of conversations like this on your own without anyone else there and have the confidence that you can solve it together. But again, I'll be here if you want to talk soon, but best of luck to you. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for calling. You too. Take care. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadid Hulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadid 
Olakui. For the last segment, I wanted to talk about an article I read on Business Insider, which is titled, Parents Control Their Children in One of Two Ways, and Only One Leads to Happier Kids. Now, of course, they might try to tease you with these uh, titles to make you click and read the article, but it is an interesting article, so they kind of don't let you know what they're exactly talking about. When you read the article, you see that uh, it's based on some research uh, that was recently done from University College London uh, that was looking about how uh, kids uh, perceived their parents. And they found that uh, pa- children who perceived their parents as psychologically controlling, um, that was the worst outcome. But when they found that they had uh, warmth and found that they were not controlling, they, they fared much so basically what they found was that those parents who, or the children who felt that their parents were exhibiting or extending psychological control had lower mental well-being throughout their adult lives. And in fact, it said it was equal to re- having a, a recent death of a close friend or a relative. That's how significant the impact of having um, controlling parents, psychologically controlling parents was. So let me read you from um, the study or what the author of the study said. So they found that people whose parents showed warmth and responsiveness had higher life satisfaction and better mental well-being throughout early, middle, and late adulthood. By contrast, psychological control was significantly associated with lower life satisfaction and mental well-being. Examples of psychological control include not allowing children to make their own decisions, invading their privacy, and fostering dependence, end quote. And I'm going to get into those last three things because I think in many families, especially um, Iranian families, we do those things a lot. But they followed these children into their early, middle, and late adulthood, and they found how much of an impact, how controlling their parents were to them. And very often parents think that their duty or their responsibility is to try to control their kids to be good, which does come from this mindset that almost inherently children are bad or that we are bad and that we have to control people and we have to control children from a young age to be good and to do good things. And I think this conception of human nature is very flawed in that it doesn't recognize that children themselves are good actually far better than us and yes we can help instill or encourage them to do positive things and even as this book the road less traveled that i talked about today increase or improve their discipline and ability to do those types of things that involve discipline but what we want to really do is bring out that goodness which is already within them and actually the word education the root word is from Um, bringing that which is within out, what is already there, bringing it out. And unlike what we usually think of education, which is we just stuff people or children with knowledge or we tell them how to do things, really the true nature of education is to bring that which is already within out. And that's, that's what we need to do. So as a parent, you're not supposed to, or your job is not supposed to be to control your kids, to get them to do what you want. But unfortunately, many parents think that's what they're supposed to do. Even some parents pride themselves or they compare themselves to other parents based on how much they can control them. If they're in a public setting, how much can I get my kid to do what I want when I want them to do it? Which usually involves tactics involving aggression, instilling fear in your children, 
uh, and all sorts of other bad things that aren't good for your relationship with them or for their own psychological well-being, as this study is describing. But this idea that we pride ourselves on how much we can control our kids or we even tell our kids how great they are because they do what we want them to do. And a bad kid is someone who doesn't listen. Well, you can hear it in Farsi or in English or in any language. They say, oh, he's a bad kid. He doesn't listen. And that's not what kids are supposed to do. They're not just supposed to listen to us. But coming back to this idea of what psychological control is, as the authors of the study described it. So they said it includes not allowing children to make their own decisions. That's one part of it. And how often do parents do that or they think they're supposed to do that? I see it so often, whether it's personally or professionally in my therapy practice, where parents think they have to protect their kids from everything and including allowing them to make decisions that might hurt them. First of all, very often we don't even actually know what's best for them, but we think we have to make the right decisions for them because we know better. So we don't let them make the choices of what classes they take, um, what they do in their lives, how they spend their free time from a young age and growing into adolescence. And I see this a lot with the young adults who are now given this huge responsibility of figuring out what they want to do for their career, one huge decision, and figuring out if they want to get married and who they want to marry, another very big decision. Yet they never really have been given the opportunity to make a decision in their lives. And they're faced with so much anxiety because this idea or this um, the conception they get based on their parents not allowing them to make any decisions is, I don't know how to make any decisions. I'm going to get it wrong. And I don't want to do this. I don't want to make this choice. They don't want that responsibility. So that's a big one, not allowing your children to make their own decisions. So as a parent, you have to think, how much do I do that? How much space do I give my son or daughter to make his or her own decision and decisions in their life? The second one that they included here was invading their privacy. Uh, some families don't even understand how much they're invading the privacy of their children and they don't give them any space. Some parents actually almost think they have the right to know anything about their child, that their child can't have any privacy from them because they have this right as the parent. I work with teenage and even young adult clients who will talk about how their mother, especially, it could be the father too, will just open the door to their bedroom without knocking or without announcing anything, just walking in and thinking, well, it's my son, my daughter, what do they have to hide from me? But we have to give our children that space to have their own independence and their own privacy, to be their own person, that they have personal space, even from a young age. Uh, this is why when we talk to parents about how they should talk to their kids about their bodies, we say, this is your body and no one can touch it in a way that you don't like. No one could say you have to hug me or kiss me or anything else. This is your body. This is your own personal space. And also you have your own mental space and emotional space that we have to give to you. And we're going to give you that. So we don't want to invade their privacy. And the third one they mentioned here was fostering dependence. And this is something that in Persian families, we're very, very good at. And it goes back to what I was saying before in The Road Less Traveled, how he said that love has to involve increasing or contributing to someone's spiritual growth. But very often we do the opposite when we're trying to foster dependence. If I keep you weak, you can't go very far from me. If I actually literally, but really more figuratively, don't make it that you can walk away from me, then you can never leave me. But the essence of maternal love 
is this paradox that you love something in a way that it can go away from you. You love something so much by nurturing it, um, allowing it to grow, fostering its development so that it can go away from you, not so that you can keep it near to yourself. But many parents don't do that. Instead, they foster the dependence of their children. It feels like love, but it's really this dependency which is not love. Again, as was discussed in that book, The Road Less Traveled, that I discussed today, that dependency is not love. So psychological control has this very negative impact on our children. It doesn't allow them to be themselves, to even figure out who they are and what they want to be. And they even distinguish between behavioral control, which doesn't have such negative consequences, and psychological control. So behavioral control, um, as they put it, is referring to the extent that parents ask kids to constrain their behaviors. So it might even be a strict parent, but it doesn't have to be. But it's more about the behaviors that they do. You can't go out this late. You have this curfew. This is your bedtime. And although I don't think that's always the best thing if you do it just in that strict way, but they're saying that's not so bad compared to psychological control, which is the extent to which parents try to control the child's emotional state or beliefs. And this is something that parents do a lot. Emotional state. When parents can't tolerate their children being sad or being angry, we're trying to control their emotional state. No, you don't get angry with me or don't cry because that's going to make me sad or I'm not going to like that. Sometimes we won't vocally express these things, but the kids learn this, that we're not supposed to cry in front of them. We can't be sad or I can't get angry with my parents. They won't accept or tolerate that. Whereas a parent, you want to allow your child to experience whatever emotional uh, state they're having. You want to allow for that to be true. So the example they give here is they may use guilt induction to make the child feel that they won't be loved if they don't do what the parents want. And the core of psychological control is that it's an assault on the child's self. So if many parents, again, they'll use guilt, as I was talking about before, to make the child feel bad if they, let's say, are sad or if they get angry with them and they'll make them feel like they might not be loved And because of that, the child thinks they have to put their emotions away. They have to put their feelings away. Now, what's the difference between the behavioral control? Well, in the behavioral control, you're just controlling things they might do, but you're not controlling who they are and who they want to be. You can allow them to, or you can set limits with them without making them feel bad about who they are. And not only that, as they discuss in this article, that You can have expectations, you can have boundaries, but even more than that, what's important is to take it a step further. And this is something I always encourage parents to do. Talk to your your children about the limits you're setting. Actually allow them to be part of the process of creating those limits. Okay, what's your bedtime going to be? Let's talk about it together. And it doesn't mean that if the child says a certain time, you say, okay, we're going to do that, but you make it a conversation. You make them feel part of the process and you explain to them the why. You know, it's important for you to go to sleep at a certain time because you know when you don't get enough sleep how do you feel the next day and the kid can say oh i feel uh i can't keep my eyes open or i feel grumpy and all these things yeah that's right those are not good feelings so we want to make sure you get enough sleep every day which we think is and then you give them a certain number of hours and you then work backwards say well what time do you think you need to get go to sleep to get that much sleep or to feel good in the morning and make them feel part of the process that's a much more engaging and empowering way of parenting rather than just try to control them. And so you can try to control or even modify the behaviors they do. But what 
psychologically controlling parents are doing is they're trying to control every opinion, every feeling, every thought that their child has. Even in independent families, we know what happens is that we can't even disagree with one another. We have to see things the same way. If I like this TV show, you have to like this TV show. If I like this person, you have to like this person. And if I dislike this person, you have to also dislike this person. You can't have a good relationship with them. Um, for a person in a dependent relationship, any type of space feels like death. And again, that's why it's not true love, because as I was explaining before and as discussed in The Road Less Traveled, there has to be space for there to be true love, or even as I talked about with the caller in the previous segment. But in dependency relationships, it's not true love, and because of that, any type of space is taken as a threat to the relationship and as a threat to the person themselves, that you don't even know if they love you or if you're going to be loved. So as a parent, we have to be very mindful and aware, am I trying to psychologically control my kids? And unfortunately, I think many parents think this is the right approach. I need to get them to think the right way, to feel the right things and to think the right things. And I know what that is. When as a parent, that isn't your job whatsoever. Your kids are from you, but they're not yours. They came from you, but they're not yours. That's actually not quoting directly, but from Khalil Gibran also, that we are not, we don't own our children, which many people and parents think they do. Well, they're my kids. I can tell them to do whatever I want. Absolutely not. As a parent, your responsibility is to love them. You don't have a possession or you don't have any rights to them in that sense. You actually have a responsibility or they have a right to expect from you that you give them the parenting and the love that they deserve. So as the study found, parents who show warmth and responsiveness, their kids have higher life satisfaction and better mental well-being throughout life. Warmth and responsiveness. So responsiveness means I see you and I hear you and I respond to what you are saying. I don't try to control you or make you what I think is right or good for you. I give you that space to be yourself. So again, even with our children, although we're very close with them, to have true love for them, we have to give them that space to be themselves not telling them this is the right way to be, not telling them you're going to be judged by other people or judged by us if you are, are a certain way, but letting them know that you can be whoever you want, you can feel whatever you want, that's okay. I'm going to love you no matter what. That unconditional love should be something that they feel wholeheartedly that it will be there no matter what. So I'm going to go ahead and post this article. Again, it's from Business Insider called Parents control their children in one of two ways and only one leads to happier kids. And as I was talking about, the psychological control is the one that leads to more unhappy children in the long term. And it's something that we must be very careful about. And I plan to do a seminar on parenting, not this next one, which as I said, will be on emotional intelligence or something related to um, having a better emotional relationship with ourselves or a relationship with our emotions. But in the near future, I definitely want to do one on parenting because I think it is, of course, a very significant issue and then what's one that's worth addressing. Okay, again, the book for this week before I sign off for today is Carol S. Dweck's book, Mindset, The New Psychology of success. And I have many books that I'd like to do this year, but if you have any suggestions, feel free to message me on my Facebook page or on Twitter, any suggestions you have for 
books of the week in the near future. But for this week, it's Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. All right. We've reached the end of today's program. Thank you to the caller. Thank you to all the listeners out there. And thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. Have a wonderful night.